Stories of sibling rivalry littered the sports world. I think of Peyton and Eli Manning, two of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. Now, personally, I think that Peyton was a little bit of a better quarterback than Eli, though they both have two Super Bowl rings. And who did Eli beat to win both of his Super Bowls? Well, it was uh, Peyton's biggest rival, Grandpa Tom Brady. But the thing is, the two quarterbacks actually never play on the field at the same time, even though I'm sure these two had quite the interesting uh, Thanksgiving dinner conversations. But I think of another sibling rivalry in the sport world and in football, I think of Jim and John Harbaugh, two men that were big coaches in the NFL back in 2013. They both played against each other in the Super Bowl, the biggest game of the year, right? And these two are kind of known for getting after one another, getting in fights with one another. And they had a little bit of an interesting interaction in the post-game handshake, you know, things that were actually allowed way back in 2013. They went to shake each other's hand, and uh, John, who won the game, he went in for the bro hug. You know how that works? You kind of turn the handshake, and you go like this, and you go in for the bro hug. Well, Jim was like, we aren't doing this. He shoves his elbow into his brother's chest to say, there's no bro hug today, bro. And can just not quite what you want from a brotherly interaction. But when we think of the sports world, I mean, it's hard to imagine a sibling rivalry that's any bigger than Venus and Serena Williams, two of the best tennis players to ever play the game. And they've competed professionally against each other on the same court eight times, and those matchups are known to get a little bit heated, especially after the younger sister beat the older sister two times in a row. That didn't make Venus very happy. But that's enough about sports. I know not all of us are sports fans. Let's go a little bit into the uh, pop culture world. Now, who back in 2007 was a giant Jonas Brothers fan? Please don't put your hand in the air. I actually don't want to know. <laughs> These brothers were thrust into stardom mostly because of the Disney Channel, and, and they were making millions and millions of dollars. And on the outside, things were looking great. But things started to unravel a little bit behind the scenes. And if I had to take a stab, I think it was because they didn't want to share the spotlight. Nick especially seemed to have a tough time. He was feeling a little bit, quote, trapped. But if I had to guess, Nick was feeling just a little bit jealous, if you know what I mean. But that's beside the point. Now, they broke up and started doing their own thing. But then, much to the amazement and the surprise of the adoring fans, I'm sure, none of you, they got back together and released an album in 2019. I did some Spotify research, and interesting enough, that was Jonah's top album of the year last year. So I'm glad that you loved the Jonas Brothers, Jonah. Awesome. That was a joke. I was just kidding. I think, I don't know, maybe. We'll have to check Spotify later. Sibling rivalry. It litters the sport world. It's all in pop culture. But do we realize the stories of sibling rivalry in the scripture? I mean, it didn't take very long. The two, the first brothers, right, Cain and Abel, Cain was so angry at his younger brother Abel that he killed him. That is not a good place to start. I mean, think about Joseph and his 10 older brothers. It's probably not a good idea to wake up in the morning and while you're eating your Wheaties around the breakfast table to tell your brothers, hey guys, just so you know, I had a dream last night that all of you bowed down and worshiped me. Isn't that great? probably not the right breakfast conversation. Or to flaunt around uh, the field with your brothers, you're wearing this coat that your dad made for you because he loves you the most. And you tell your brothers, hey, you like this jacket I'm wearing? It's actually because dad loves me more than all of you. Not a good idea, Joseph. 
Well, he made his brother so mad that they beat him up, threw him in the bottom of a well, sold him off into slavery to Egypt, and then lied to their dad and told him that he was killed. Sibling rivalry much? But we're going to look at an account tonight. It's one of the best stories, or the worst stories, of sibling rivalry in all of Scripture. It's actually the two most famous twins in the Bible, Jacob and Esau. And the rivalry between them actually predates their birth. It goes all the way back into the womb. Let me just read a little bit from Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins within her womb. The first came out red, and his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and he was called Jacob. Can you imagine what that would be like to be Rebecca, to have twins in your womb, and you can physically feel them fist fighting against each other while you're pregnant? That'd be unreal. And even as they're growing up, I mean, we don't have a lot in Scripture about what their growing up years were like, but I can only imagine the stories that they could tell. The amount of black eyes that came from farm equipment, or the amount of times they lined up in the field to have a foot race to see who was going to be faster, or the amount of times they came home with a report card at the end of the first quarter comparing them to see who got better grades, or the amount of times they tried to get each other in trouble in front of their mom or in front of their dad, or the amount of stories that their mom and dad simply just didn't know. Can you imagine what it would be like growing up with these two brothers? And as time went, the divide got bigger and bigger, the, the fights got stronger and stronger, and they were just two totally different people. I mean, Esau was his dad's favorite. He was this manly man who was always going out into the field. He never wore deodorant. Actually, the Bible probably doesn't say that. But then there's Jacob, who was kind of his mother's favorite, and he was maybe a little bit more sensitive. The text calls him a—he a, lived at home. He loved dwelling in tents. In other words, he loved being inside. He loved being at home. But the text calls Jacob, the younger brother, a trickster, which is just kind of a nice way of calling him a liar. And he was always getting in trouble for not telling the truth. And there's one day his brother's out in the field and he comes back from a hunt and his famished is starving, right? And there's no McDonald's for him to drive through. So he needs some food. And he says, Jacob, make me some food right now. And Jacob says, well, I will if you sell me your birthright. <laughs> Wait, your birthright? I mean, that's kind of foreign for us, but in this culture, that firstborn, the oldest, they got the double portion of the inheritance. Like, they kind of felt like the favorite of the father and Jacob. That's what he wanted. That's what he longed for. So he tricked his brother into selling him his birthright. Well, they forgot about it for a couple of years until Isaac, their dad, is on his deathbed. He's blind. He can't see. And he says, okay, guys, this is it. I'm going to give you your blessings. So he calls Esau in and says, I'm going to give you your blessing, but first, make me some food. Make me my favorite dish. So he does. And Esau goes out and goes on this hunt and gets the food and prepares it. Well, while he's gone, Jacob comes into his dad and he's wearing this like goat skin coat so that he feels like his brother. I mean, that's how hairy his brother Esau was. He has to put goat skin on his arm. And he goes into his dad and says, uh, tries to impersonate his brother and says, yeah, I'm Esau. And he gets the blessing of his dad, gets the blessing of the oldest child. And right when his dad says, amen, Esau comes walking in and says, hey, dad, I'm here to receive my blessing. 
I mean, you can imagine how angry Esau was, even to the point of murder. He wanted to kill his brother, so Jacob was left with only one choice. Jacob ran for his life and fleed from his brother. But it's interesting what God said to their mom, saying that there's two nations striving in your womb. So the divide began in the womb, didn't just finish when Jacob ran from home, because these two men became the fathers of two totally separate nations. God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and God changes Esau's name to Edom. And they're right next door neighbors. Edom, the country, was just to the southeast of Israel. And as time went on, the divide between these two countries grew and grew. They were not friendly neighbors. I mean, remember Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, they ended up for 400 years being slaves in Egypt. And then they come wandering back through the wilderness with Moses and they try to make their way back to the promised land. But when they get there, they come to the boundary of Edom. And they've got to pass through Edom in order to get home. I mean, they could go around, but it would be like trying to go from Wisconsin to Indiana without going through Illinois. It would be obnoxious, right? So they needed to go through Edom. So they knock on the king's door and they say, hey, we really need to pass through your land. We're not going to touch the fields. We're not going to go off the path. Even if our cattle drink some water, they eat some food, we're going to pay you for it. And the king slams the door in their face and says, you're not walking through my land. If you even step foot in my land, you are going to die. And if I had to guess, that was the G-rated version of what he told them. The divide was growing stronger and stronger. And you fast forward a little bit, a couple more years, there was a man, an Edomite, Edomite, whose name was Doeg. And he was not what we would call a very nice person. It's probably because his name was Doeg, but that's besides the point. And here's what the text says. The king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg was an Edomite. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, which is what the priests wore. And Nob, which was the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So just for fun, Doeg the Edomite decides he's going to kill 85 priests and an entire city, including the women and the children. Not what we would call a friendly neighbor. And as time goes on, even the book of Second Chronicles, we see that the Edomites, they conquer, or they, de- they defeat some of the Israelites in a battle, and they take them back into their land and hold them as captives, as hostages. I mean, things were not looking good. Even fast forward past the time of the prophets, there was this king, maybe you've heard of him, his name was Herod, when Jesus was born, when he tried to kill every single baby boy in all the land of Israel, guess what his nationality was? He was an Edomite. <laughs> so there's this divide They hated each other. And the Edomites in particular were not good neighbors to their blood brothers, the Jews. But we find ourselves in the middle of the Minor Prophets. So how does this story connect? Well, some of the prophets, they preached to the 10 northern tribes. Some preached to the two southern tribes of Judah. But yet some preached to other nations. And that's what we see in our text tonight. We're going to be in the book of Obadiah. God called Obadiah to preach to the Edomites. Now, my guess is uh, for us to find Obadiah, we're probably going to have to go to the table of contents in our Bible because you probably haven't turned there recently. And it's even harder to find because this is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. It's just 21 verses. If you miss it, you miss it. Jonah's on one side, Amos is on the other. And we think that this book was written sometime in the 6th century, sometime after the fall of Jerusalem. And we don't know much about Obadiah. 
We just know that God called him and commanded him to go and preach. So follow along with me. I'll just read the first two verses. It says this. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. Well, this is an oracle. It's a prophecy. In other words, this is a sermon against the Edomites. And we even see as we continue in the book, gives us even a better picture of how the Edomites treated the Israelites. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day you stood aloof. On that day strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lot for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. But don't gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of their distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Don't stand at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives. Don't hand him over to his survivors in the day of his distress. Well, if you're listening, right, there's a little phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again in those six verses, the day of distress or the day of calamity. What's that talking about? Well, I know this passage that was written in present tense, but really that was a poetic device looking to the past at something that already happened. Certainly the day of distress, the day of calamity is what happened in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar came down from his beautiful palace in modern day Iraq in Babylon and defeated the, the Jews in Jerusalem. He ransacked the city and took the people back as captives, that was the day of calamity for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah. But do you see what happened with Edom? The text says that they stood aloof. They were their neighbors. In other words, they could see everything that was happening. And instead of helping their brothers, what they basically did is they bought the tickets into the press box or that luxury box, and, and they popped their popcorn, went to the theater, and they just watched everything happen. They did nothing. But then it gets worse than that. It says in verse 11 that you were like one of them. So they didn't just pop their popcorn and watch the Israelites get destroyed. No, they joined in and they helped Nebuchadnezzar defeat the city. Then he takes it even a step farther and says that they stood at the crossroads, which means that while people were trying to escape, while the Jews were running away from Jerusalem, certainly not all of them were with Nebuchadnezzar. There were some that tried to escape. The Edomites stood at the crossroads and they handcuffed them and turned them in and sent them back to Nebuchadnezzar. And then once all the Jews were out of Jerusalem, then they went in and they plundered the city and they took all the stuff that they wanted. That's not what we would call brotherly love. That's not what we would call a good neighborly relationship. And that's exactly what the Edomites did to the Jews. And the Edomites thought, oh, we've gotten away with this. But they hadn't. For over 800 years, they'd made God very, very angry. And he sends his prophet Obadiah to preach to them to say, the day of destruction, the day of your calamity is coming because of what you've done. But God doesn't just condemn them for their actions. It's actually something a little bit different. It's something a little bit deeper because our actions, our behaviors always come from somewhere deeper in our heart. And that was true of the Edomites as well. There was something a little bit deeper going on. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. It's that one word that always comes back to bite us, pride. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, putting ourselves in the place of God, thinking that we're self-sufficient, that we don't need anything. Pride. It's a problem for the Edomites. They thought that they were above the law, so they did whatever they wanted. They wanted to get wealth the easy way, so they plundered their brothers, and they disobeyed what they knew to be true. But God says, not so fast. I'm going to humble you. The day of my retribution is coming. And as we read through the book, there were at least four things that contributed to the Edomites' pride, four reasons that they were prideful. And we saw the first in those verses that we just read. You live in the cleft of the rock in your lofty dwelling. It's talking about their geography, where they lived. Where they lived, it was in the hill country, and there were caves, and they lived in the caves. They were up high in the mountains, and they thought they were above, they were beyond defeat, that no one could defeat them because of where they lived. And we all know from a military standpoint that whoever has the highest ground has the advantage. And that's exactly what happened to the Edomites. They thought that because they had the high ground, because they could see their enemies coming from tens, 20, 30 miles away, that they could not be defeated. They were prideful because of where they lived. But it was more than that. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? They weren't just prideful because of where they lived. They were prideful because they're wise men. They had the philosophers. They had the education. They thought that they were smarter, that they knew more than their brothers, the Israelites. And that caused pride in their heart because they thought they were just simply smarter and better educated. But it's not just what you know, it's who you know. And that led to the third reason for their pride. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Well, he talks about their allies. And the Edomites were prideful because of their foreign policy. They thought that, well, we've got seven different nations that we've got on speed dial, that if King Nebuchadnezzar comes down from his beautiful palace in Babylon and wants to defeat us, that we've got a ton of different people that we can call that are going to come to our rescue because we have good foreign policy. We have friends in high places. But there was a fourth reason for their pride in verse 5. If thieves, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? What he's saying is that the Edomites, they had more than enough. They had everything that they could ever want. Their hearts were full. Their pantries were full. Their stomachs were full. Their bank accounts were full. They were overflowing with materialism. And they thought, well, because we've just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and because we have had all the material success that we could ever want, then we could never be defeated. We are above defeat. They were prideful. And they believed they were above the law, that it couldn't be defeated. But what they didn't realize is that they had a far more ferocious foe than the Babylonians. They'd made themselves enemies of the Almighty God. And though God had been patient with them, He'd given them centuries to turn away from their sin. The clock was ticking, time was running out, and God promises His just retribution. And historically, we know that God fulfilled his promise. It wasn't too long after 586 BC that Nebuchadnezzar came back down to the same region and decided 
to defeat the Edomites, and they were almost completely destroyed. The rest of the Edomites were destroyed in 70 AD by Titus and the Roman army. God fulfills his promises. But we know by looking around us that pride wasn't just a problem for the Edomites. It's a problem in our culture. It's a problem in our world as well, which is exactly why the Bible devotes verse after verse after verse to talking about pride. I mean, just think of the famous Proverbs that we can recite off the top of our mind. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or how about this? Pride comes before a fall. But why is that? Why does pride come before a fall? Is it simply just because prideful behavior then as a natural consequence is going to lead to humiliation, it's going to lead to a fall? It's possible. I think we need to take our theology a step farther. Pride comes before a fall because pride is antithetical to the nature and the character of God. And when he sees a person or a nation, or in particular when he sees one of his children struggling with pride, then God brings about the discipline in that person's life to bring them back to him. Pride comes before a fall because God brings about the fall. Because pride is idolatry. Pride is thinking of ourselves better than God. Pride says, I know best, not the Lord. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, pride was at the center of the original sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and decided they were going to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they thought they knew best. They were blazing their own trail and walking their own path. They thought, we don't need to listen to God. They made themselves God. At the core, they were prideful. And any time that we give in to sin, we're giving in in some way to the sin of pride because we're saying, I know better than God. So if someone says to us, you know, I don't think I struggle with the sin of pride They're basically claiming perfection, and that's impossible. To some extent, all of us are going to struggle with pride. And pride is antithetical to the message of the gospel. And think of the good news that Jesus came and lived in our place and died on our behalf and rose from the dead so that we could have new life. But when someone thinks on the gospel... It's impossible for a prideful person to believe in Christ because the prideful person says, I've got my act together. I don't really need a savior. I don't really need a rescuer. No, I'm good enough on my own before God. Only a humble person can cry out to Jesus and say, I need help. I need rescuing. I need saving. I'm not good enough on my own. I need forgiveness. Jesus, save me. It takes humility to embrace the message of the gospel. Is it possible that Personal pride has kept you from believing in Jesus for your salvation. It's the most important decision that we can make. Repent, cry out to Jesus, believe that he died for you and give your life to him. But here's the deal. All of us struggle with pride. There is just no way around that. I think that's probably going to be a reality, at least a temptation in our life until the day we go home to glory. But we have to be careful not to give into the same root problem as the Edomites. Because I think it's easier for us to give into pride than we probably like to admit. And we don't want to make the same mistake. So here's our big idea tonight. It doesn't matter what you know, what you have, who you know, or where you live if you don't follow God. It doesn't matter 
what you know, what you have, who you know, or where you live if you don't follow God. And why don't we just talk about those four things for a moment? Four ways that maybe contribute to pride in our own hearts. It doesn't matter what we know. Education. Is it possible that knowledge has puffed us up? Is it possible that we think of ourselves more highly than someone else because of the education that we have? Because the more someone knows, the more knowledge they have, the farther that we might progress along the educational spectrum, the easier it is to become prideful. I'm not saying education is bad, but I'm saying the more education that we have, the more we have to fight against pride. Because the more that we know, the easier it is to think, I'm self-sufficient, I'm going to be okay, I can solve all of my own problems. The more education that we have, or the more knowledge that we have, the easier it is to think, well, I'm better than so-and-so because I know more than them. I have more knowledge than them. I have more education than them. Anytime we're tempted in that direction, that's a temptation of pride. But think of it another way. In the rise of the technical age that we live in, we can Google anything. We can know anything in an instant. Is it possible that the ability just to Google any question that we have has actually reduced our dependence on God? Because when we have a problem, where do we go first? Do we go to God or do we go to Google? If we're feeling depressed or anxious, do we place in the search bar, how do I solve anxiety? How do I fix depression? Or do we go to the Lord? When we're in the middle of a difficult breakup in a relationship, do we type, how do I get over my ex? Or do we go to the Lord? I'm not saying it's wrong to Google things. <laughs> It's a great tool. But I promise the answers that God might have in His Word are going to be far better than anything that we can find on Google. Here's another source of pride, what we have. Certainly our possessions, the things that we own, are a source of our pride. Are we impressed by our income level? Are, are we excited or impressed by the house that we just bought or hope to buy? Are we impressed by our investments, our, our 401k, the truck that we drive? The stamp collection that we own. Oh, wait, only Fritz has one of those. Sorry about that. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to have stuff, to have possessions. But at some point, we cross a line into being grateful for what we have and finding our identity, our worth in what we have by worshiping our possessions as idols. And here's a test, maybe a, a diagnostic tool to find out, you know, how do I know if this thing in my life is an idol? Well, imagine if that thing was instantly taken away. How would we feel? If the truck is totaled, if the house burns down, if the investment portfolio goes to zero, if the dream job or the dream relationship heads south, would our life be ruined? That could be an indicator that maybe that thing has become an idol. A great way to fight against this sort of pride in our life is just by gratitude, by saying, thank you, God. Thank you for this gift that you've given me. Thank you for this relationship or this job. Thank you for the car that I drive or the house that I have. And when we say thank you, we're reminding ourselves that we're not entitled, that it's not ours. We're just stewards of the things that God has given us. We have to fight against pride in what we own. Here's another way we could be prideful. It's who we know. 
You know, it's easy to find pride in maybe the, the circles that we run in, the friends that we have, the connections that we've built, our followers on Instagram or on TikTok. And we know that this is a problem when we start name dropping. And we say something like, hey guys, you won't believe who just followed me on Instagram. Or we say something like, this past weekend, I was playing Settlers of Catan at Pastor Andrew's house. And we start name dropping people that are important, right? That's a symbol, it's a sign that maybe we're struggling with what I would call positional pride. It's pride because of our associates. Pride's because of people who were around, not in our own accolades, but our important friends. Sometimes we like to feel important by having important friends, and that can be a source of pride. Well, here's the fourth source of pride for the Edomites, and I think for us, geographical pride. Pride because of where we live. I think there might be more pride associated with being an American than just any other, than maybe any other country on earth. And I don't think that song, I'm proud to be an American, is a song of confession of pride. Now, let me be clear. I love our country. I'm so thankful for the world that God has given to us. And there are so many blessings that come with being an American. I mean, think of the opportunity just tonight to be together. We are here, and we have the freedom to do that unhindered. That's amazing. Think of the blessings of opportunity and education, the things that we have. I mean, it seems unparalleled. God has been so gracious to us, and we should say thank you for that every day. But our gratitude can't cross the line into pride. We can't think that we're better than somebody else because we fly the American flag. I mean, if we travel to another country and we ask for an honest assessment of Americans and ask, do you think Americans are prideful? 11 out of 10 people around the world would say yes. That's probably not a good sign. But think of what pride did for the Edomites. Because of where they lived, that they thought that they were above being defeated. They trusted in their geography, not in the Lord. But is it possible that we do the same thing? That we think that we're sheltered in this bubble because we live in America? Do we trust in American society, social security to keep us safe? Do we trust in our amazing military to protect us? Do we think that everything is just going to be okay because we have this perfect life of peace in America? Friends, pride comes before a fall. And there's a lot of pride in our country. And we need to hold that intention with being grateful for the gift of our nation, the opportunities that we have, and, and thankful for those that serve our nation, but at the same time, not feel entitled to the gift that God has given us in our nation and being thankful for it. Is it possible that we struggle with pride because of where we live, of what we know, of who we know, what we have? I mean, if we look hard enough, I'm sure all of us could find somewhere where we're struggling with pride. And if we don't find anything, then we've got to dig a little bit deeper because I promise it's there. But when we think about pride, one of the most sobering verses, I think, in Scripture, I quoted a little bit earlier, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When I think of the word opposition, I just think of sports. The person on the opposing sideline. Think of how that would apply to our relationship with God, that when someone is struggling with the root of pride in their heart that is unconfessed, they put themselves on the opposite sideline of the Lord. And when we're picking teams for recess kickball, who always gets picked first? The guy who always wins, right? 
And in terms of the Lord, He never loses. He's always on the winning team. But when we struggle with pride, we're putting ourselves on the opposite sideline. That is not a good place to be. I'm not saying that we are losing our salvation. I'm not saying that God kicks us out of His family. I'm saying that we drive a wall in our relationship with God that needs to be torn down. And we do that by saying, Father, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for this pride in my life. And, and I turn away from it. I repent of it. And I'm turning towards you. That takes humility. We all need that humility to confess our pride, both to our Father and to those that have been affected by it in our lives. Now, definitely, Amos is a text of retribution, of justice, punishment. But I'm also convinced that this is a text of patience. Patience is littered throughout the book of Amos. Now, if you look at Amos and you search the word patience, you're not going to find it. It's not in there. But it's there. I mean, just think. God waited 800 years before he sent Obadiah to bring this message. That's a long time. God was remarkably patient with the Edomites. But let me ask a question that the text doesn't answer. Why in the world does God call Obadiah to go preach to the Edomites? And a foreign nation. I mean, come on. If God would have wanted to wipe the Edomites off the face of the earth, he would have done it without sending a preacher to them. So why does he send Obadiah? Well, I think it's because God was giving them one last chance to repent one last opportunity to turn away from their sin and to embrace him as their God. God was patient towards the Edomites. And God's patient towards us. Second Peter 3, verse 9. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's one of our favorite attributes of God because God has been patient with you. God has been patient with me. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ and you haven't followed him, then he's being patient towards you and he's begging with you, he's pleading you, follow me, believe in me, turn to me. And tonight that window is open, that door is open, but that window of opportunity won't be open forever. I mean, think of Isaiah 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Don't delay the decision to follow Christ. That window's not going to be open forever. Believe in him. Because God doesn't simply just overlook our offenses. And he makes that abundantly clear in the book of Obadiah. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Notice what he says. He doesn't say the Israelites he doesn't just say the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. He doesn't just say the Edomites. No, he says, the day of the Lord is near on all nations. The day of the Lord is his day of judgment, his day of punishment and retribution. I think all nations, I think we fall under that umbrella. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. Huh. Well, that's kind of a sobering verse. As it's been done to us, then so it will be returned. I mean, when we look in the river mirrors at our life, we think of the ways that maybe we've sinned against God or we've sinned against other people. Imagine those same sins then being committed to us. <laughs> that doesn't sound very fun. There are things that I've done that I don't want done back to me, certainly. But that's what this text is saying. Because God doesn't simply just overlook a sin. He can't just pardon a sin. God has to punish. That's part of his justice. But Jesus came and died in our place. 
and lived the perfect life that we never could have dreamt of living and went to the cross for us and rose from the dead so that when God looks at his children, he takes our sin, our evil, and he puts it on Christ. In terms of our pride, either Jesus paid for our pride at the cross or we're going to pay for our pride for all of eternity. There is no in-between. Each one of us need Christ. And when we look in the mirror at our life, there's going to be some pride. <clears throat> and that's going to be a struggle for the rest of our life. But I've learned the hard way that things go a little bit better when we initiate the turn rather than waiting for God to initiate it for us. I mean, I remember when I was working out on the West Coast and as a worship leader at a church, I thought I was the best gift to the church. I thought that I was doing awesome things were great. I thought I'd arrived. I was finding my identity and my worth in what I was doing in my job, not in my relationship with the Lord. But I was blind to my own blindness. I didn't see the problems that were going on in my own heart. So what does God do? He takes the rug, he rips it out from underneath my feet, and everything that I'd found my identity in is gone. And I'm left picking up the pieces. Now, was that fun? Yeah, it was really fun. No, it was horrible. But that's a change that I needed in my heart, that God brought about the repentance that he knew that I needed. <laughs> but looking back, I think things would have gone a little bit easier if I would have initiated the change. So when God reveals those areas of pride in our hearts, we've got a choice. Are we just going to tolerate it? Are we going to let it grow? Are we going to get rid of it and repent? And the hard part is that pride is blinding. So we're then often blind to our pride, which is a problem. So as we finish tonight, I just want to ask God a very important question that maybe he might reveal to each one of us an area in our hearts that we might be prideful, a root of pride that might be growing undetected that we might need to confess and repent. And then I'm just going to provide 30 seconds or a minute just of quiet for us just to talk to the Lord, for him to speak to us by the power of his spirit, to convict us this is a hard question to ask, but an important one as we follow Christ. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these next couple of moments, would you reveal to us an area of our life where we might be struggling with pride? Would you impress on our hearts a way that we've been blind to pride in our lives? Father, our hearts are open and we're listening. Father, in the ways that you've just revealed pride in our hearts, give us the courage and the fortitude, the strength to not tolerate the pride, but to eliminate it by the power of the Spirit, to turn away and to run towards you. And for the areas of our life where pride might still be undetected, Father, expose the sin and bring about gospel-centered repentance and change. Father, each one of us have growing to do. And may you grow our hearts and our love towards our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.